This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Hey, podcast listeners. Peter and I hope our conversations about the musicals we love is prompting some further thoughts and conversation for you. And so we hope that you'll consider joining us under the auspices of Vancouver School of Theology in British Columbia for a class that we'll be teaching on Zoom this summer called The Gospel and Musical Theater, Race and Redemption. We'll be focusing on questions of race and how they factor into the history of musical theater, as well as what we can learn from one another as we reflect theologically on these questions as they show up in in some of our favorite musicals like Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, Ragtime, and West Side Story, Into the Heights, and Hamilton, and many, many more, there is no more important topic for people of faith to be confronting right now, we believe, than white supremacy and the many, many ways it has played out in North American history and culture. So we'll be teaching on Zoom. You can join us from wherever you happen to be, July 12th through the 16th this summer. We hope that you'll join us. You can read more and register at the Vancouver School of Theology website. That's www.vst.edu backslash summer school. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Gospel According to Musical Theater. My name is Nathan LaRude. I'm the Dean of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. We are laughing because this is our sixth or seventh attempt to get this episode started. We think we finally got it this time. And I'm still Peter Elliott from (laughs) Vancouver, British Columbia, still a good friend of Nathan's, former colleague, and happy to be doing this series of podcasts on the gospel according to musical theater. And today we are on about South Pacific, one of the great musicals of the mid-20th century. And you were saying just previously that today we're recording this on a a really auspicious day, a perfect day to record South Pacific, it being December 7th. Which is, of course, the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which is what brought the U.S. into the theater of the Second World War. Uh, So a, a day, an appropriate day to talk about, in some ways, the uh, the most World War II-oriented Broadway show that there is, a show that in, is certainly set in the Second World War, but also really tells the story of the effects of the Second World War on the American populace uh, and on actually in characters who are also not American. And uh, also a great, a great excuse for me to roll out my Franklin Delano Roosevelt impression. This is, of course, the date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. That's my uh, that's my little tribute to FDR. I had no idea. I, know. I had no idea. It only you only really get an excuse once a year to roll that one out. So you gotta <laughs> you gotta take the opportunity when it comes your way. And when you think about it, I mean, uh, in 1949, putting a musical about the Second World War on stage was extraordinary. Again, think about the the trajectory of the growth of musical theater in the United States, how it moved from the Ziegfeld, all singing, all dancing, glitz and glitter, into plays with music, integrated, that told stories that were timely, controversial, as we will discuss with with South Pacific. And South Pacific was, of course, uh, one of Rodgers and Hammerstein's great success. They were buoyed by the success of Oklahoma. They were probably a little discouraged by Carousel, which had a good run, but not a great run. So 1949, adapting James Michener's mammoth novel, Tales of the South Pacific, they reduced a lot of the narrative of that into uh, uh, a a more 
uh, a, a series of love stories that we will certainly talk about. The original Broadway production won 10 Tony Awards, including all four acting awards, and many of the songs went on to have a life of their own. Uh, going to wash that man right out of my hair, but probably most notably some Enchanted Evening, still a classic in the American song. Classic songbook. of the repertoire, yes, indeed. Written written for the, the great uh, the great Metropolitan Opera, Barrett, he's a baritone, right, Enzo Pinza? Yeah, bass baritone. Bass baritone, yeah. yeah the, uh, and, and as you were saying, I mean, the, the that quartet of Tony Award-winning actors uh, makes up a kind of a perfect uh, ensemble of quartet, right? You've got Nellie Forbush, the soubrette soprano. She's not really a soprano, but the sort of, you know, musical theater hoofer. Uh, you've got the the classic Rodgers and Hammerstein contralto, the priest of the show, if you like, Bloody Mary, played by Juanita Hall, very memorably, an African-American actress in something like Polynesian Yellow Face, which we wouldn't probably do today. Mm. And that's a, kind of an uncomfortable reality, but there you go. She was Tilt. yeah, kind of, a, kind of incredible in the role. Lieutenant Joe Cable, your classic romantic leading leading tenor, the source of many folks' young childhood sexual awakenings, <laughs> as we might talk about uh, included, <laughs> at another yeah. time. Uh, need, needs to be an actor who can take his shirt off and make everybody kind of fall apart at the seams, including Liat, who uh, who is sees something she likes and goes for it. Uh, and then our and then our bass baritone Enzio Pinza, the uh, the original Emile de Beck, the the planter with a the planter with a past, who sings some the enchanted planter evening. Planter with a past, uh, French Polynesian, and a very interesting uh, one of the plot summaries I read, uh, because it's it's placed in a non-specific part of Polynesia, uh, Solomon uh, Islands, uh, I think, is where. Missioner identifies, so. yeah, something like that. The Tonkinese, mm-hmm. who I don't think actually exist as... Uh, oh, is that a made-up? The did they make that up? Ah, it, but, or did they? That's a really good That's point. A question. Uh, more research, more research. But uh, uh, Emil de Beck and Nellie Furbish never actually sing together, even though they're one of the great romantic couples in the Rodgers and Hammerstein canon, uh, largely because, as I think you did the research on this, Mary Martin. Yeah, she wouldn't. She not... wouldn't do it. She said the only way I'll do this part, which Roger and Hammerstein wrote Nellie Forbush for Mar- for Mary Martin, needing a hit, right? They so they had come off of Oklahoma, great great big hit, Carousel, eh, and then Allegro, which tanked, right? So by right. by the time they were they were putting Allegro. together source material material for South Pacific, they knew we need a hit. Uh, so they went to Mary Martin and her husband, I think, who was the producer of South Pacific and said, hey, we're working on this. We want to write a show for Mary. Um, and she said, yeah, I'll do it, but I won't do any duets with Enzio Pinza. I will not sing, knowing, right, that her little musical theater voice would be totally dwarfed by this met, right. this met operatic voice. So, so they kind of work, did some workarounds, figured out a ways for two characters to fall in love without ever sharing a love duet. Um, and kind of came up with some pretty incredible material for for the both of them. Some Enchanted Evening and and This Nearly Was Mine for Emile de Beck, and I'm going to wash this man right out of my hair, and I'm in love with a wonderful guy for Mary Martin. Two pretty amazing songs. And Cockeye and Optimist. Optimist yeah, yeah well. she gets some great yeah. material. Yeah, whereas in Carousel, Billy Bigelow gets a soliloquy. In South Pacific, uh, the song is actually, I think, called Two Soliloquies, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, Emil de Beck and Nellie Forbush having met, um, seen each other across a crowded room, yeah. talking about their experience. And it really is kind of a, it's, it's, uh, it's as classic a piece in some ways as uh, If I Loved You, without the great tune to make it onto the top 40 hit parade, but chronicles in this one song, the, the relationship, the the thing we've all gone through, those of us who fall in and out of love with with people, imagining your your life as it 
might unfold. And uh, there's one of the one of the great lines that Nellie Forbush gets to sing is, uh, "He's a cultured Frenchman, I'm a little hick." Mm-hmm. And then I think he sings, uh, "Officers uh, 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 wanting to adore her, she could have her pick." Mm-hmm. Uh, so why would she why choose would she him? Choose me? Yeah, yeah, an older why man. Would he choose her. Yeah, right. With two children. With two children. Yeah. In the in the James Michener novel, he's a little more of a rake. I think he has like six or seven children by different Polynesian women, all kind of floating around the island, and then these two that are the product of his marriage. To a to a Polynesian woman, and his um his seeds of wild oats get scrubbed out of the musical. That's probably appropriate. It makes him much less of a, a colonialist rapist and much more into yeah. a, a character that we might actually want Mary Martin to fall in love in. But th- but that becomes the the sort of the plot point, right? That um that that she meets these two at first adorable, right? Oh, or these these adorable. And I think she even sort of says like, oh, they're they're big, beautiful black eyes. Like kind of fetishizes their difference, and then realizes. Yes. Oh, they're Emile's. Oh, he was with a woman who was not white. And actually, in the original, in the original libretto, when she asks Emile, you know, was their mother, and she kind of leaves it open, and he says Polynesian, and Mary Martin was to have said, oh, colored. And in previews, the audience gasped because beautiful Mary Martin, America's sweetheart, I mean, could not, she couldn't possibly say anything that, you know, casually racist. So they cut the line. They said that the audience won't accept you. Uh, using using that kind of terminology, but they restored it for the Broadway uh, revival that you and Bill saw with Kelly with Kelly O'Hara. Okay. She she they they kept the line where where we where we see how casually and unthinkingly racist this little quote unquote hick from uh, Arkansas or wherever she's Little Rock, yeah, Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, yep. How yep. how deep that yep. goes for her, and that really becomes in some ways that's the story of South Pacific, right? Uh, Nellie's Nellie's entrenched racism, Lieutenant Cable's entrenched racism, um, and how they how they come to terms with being very much out of their element in this you know this world of the South Pacific where the norms are very different and the climate's very different. And at one point, Nellie says to to Joe Cable, you know, we're a long way from home, Joe. We're a really yeah. long way from Little Rock, Arkansas. Wonder how I'd feel living on a hillside, looking on an ocean. Beautiful and still This is what I need This is what I've longed for Someone young and smiling Climbing up my hill We are not alike Probably I'd bore him He's a cultured Frenchman I'm a little hick Younger men than I, officers and doctors, probably pursue her, she could ever take. Wonder why I feel cheery and jumpy. I am like a schoolgirl waiting for a dance. Can I ask her now? I am like a schoolboy. What will be her answer? I have a chance. Yes, and so many fascinating pieces about the about this. Uh, number one, just like uh, Rogers and Hammerstein lifted up 
if I can put it that way, or put a, a spotlight on domestic abuse in Carousel. Um, and we talked about that in a previous podcast and still problematic uh, what you do with all that because of the way they treated it. But in South Pacific, they turn a spotlight on racism. I think intermarriage, inter interracial marriage at the time of South Pacific, 1949, was still illegal think, in the I U.S.? I think so. Yeah, I don't have the date in front of me, but I think that was before the, uh, the Supreme Court versus Loving case that, that made that legal. Um, so, so it's still very much frowned upon, right? The, 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 uh, and, and, and so for Nellie, right, it's not, it's not just, you know, marrying Emile is one thing. That's mostly about an older man with the past. It's the fact that he represents, you know, something that's unthinkable in her, in her context, um, a, a, white, a European man who married, a, for, for, as far as she's concerned, a colored girl and had mixed race kids. And it's those kids, right? That's the sticking point is that there's these mixed race kids who are the, you know, the physical embodiment of what she cannot accept. Um, and she has to really kind of and, and is able to overcome, right, overcome her prejudice. And in many ways, I mean, this is sort of Hammerstein's social agenda, right? Like the, the show, I would say more than just about any other Rogers and Hammerstein show, South Pacific really does have an agenda, uh, it can actually it can be a little preachy if it's not if it's not done correctly, and that's very personal for Oscar Hammerstein, right? This is a guy who's uh, who had experienced in a very visceral way during the Second World War. Uh, his wife's what his wife's husband was Japanese and was interred at Ellis Island as part of the Japanese internment that happened in the U.S. Uh, during the Second World War. Japanese citizens rounded up, kept <laughs> with dubious legal status uh, in basically kind of you know concentration camps of a kind. And so Hammerstein and his wife, Dorothy, had to figure out what to do with these two kids, the products of this marriage, two half, half Japanese, half, half white kids, took them to their local school down the road in New Hope, uh, New Hope Pennsylvania to see, you know, like, are these kids going to be accepted in the school and were turned away. So Hammerstein had a pretty visceral experience with the deep racism that was going on in America during the Second World War. And I think kind of wrote, certainly, you know, the, 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 the right song here is You've Got to Be Carefully Taught that Lieutenant Cable sings um, as a way of sort of angrily expressing his own realization that the, the racism that he just took for granted goes pretty deep for him, but he's not natural. I think that's the really kind of interesting social, social agenda for Hammerstein, right? There is nothing inevitable. There's nothing natural. There's nothing inborn in these characters that makes them this way. They were taught to treat other people. in. They were taught to fear quote-unquote, colored people. They were taught to fear people whose eyes are differently made, as, as Lieutenant Cable sings in, in the song. And people whose skin is a different shade. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, is this is yeah. this is a product of upbringing. It's not we I mean, now we can you know, we can maybe another time we can have a conversation around, you know, what what is the brain chemistry around racism and how does our amygdala process difference? I mean, there's actually some interesting work on that. But as far as Hammerstein's concerned, and this is this is a controversial position in 1949, right? This is learned behavior, which means it can be unlearned. It can be undone. Uh, South Pacific is written as a you know, it, there, there's a there's an agenda here, right? He wants he wants to move the conversation in America. He wants people to understand where their programming comes from so that they can undo it and work at, you know, becoming the kinds of people that Cable and Nellie, well, Cable dies, but the kind of people that Nellie Forbush is able to come, right? To be able to embrace these two mixed race kids as her, as kind of her own, marry their father and create a new kind of mixed family. That's his image of what America can be and maybe what a human being can be. And so no one misses that. It's the children that begin and end the show. Right. 
singing uh, "Tell Me Why yeah. Is It," uh, "Tell Me Why You Love Me." Yeah, and uh, that begins the show seeing these two, as you say, adorable children on the terrace of Emil de Beck's place and a very interesting opening of a show after a magnificent overture with ballet, the theme ballet high just kind of resonating through. And then all of a sudden you're in a very domestic, uh, very domestic world and you come expecting a show about the Second World War and you're in a beautiful uh, uh, terrazzo, something like that, overlooking the ocean, two adorable children. And then at the end, uh, you're back in that same situation with uh, Nellie, who assumed that Emil de Beck had been shot down, as Lieutenant Cable was, back with the kids in the sense of, uh, just as you say, we can make a new family here. This can be a new way of of being human. When we taught uh, South Pacific once before, uh, leading a course at Trinity Portland on Zoom, uh, this being uh, pandemic time, we had small groups picking up your comments about uh, carefully taught. We asked them about their attitudes toward race when they were six or seven or eight and got some really interesting conversation about people remembering being taught racist, what we would name now as racist attitudes toward uh, people of other cultures, other skin colors, so forth. Yeah. Nellie really, I mean, she's a really interesting character. I mean, both she, she, Nellie and Cable both navigate their internalized racism in, in different ways. But that the scene that leads up to um, you've got to be carefully taught. It's a really interesting scene to me. You know, she she's she's just come off of her big success singing Honey Bun as part of the you know the the big soldier celebration thing. Cable gives flowers to somebody else, and they you know kind of basically Cable can or not Cable. Uh, Emil confronts her. Right, Nellie has walked out on him, and he kind of you know, he, he, this is his kind of last ditch attempt to to win her back. Right, Nellie, I don't believe that your prejudices can really keep the love that you that we clearly have from flourishing and she kind of turns to cable and kind of tries to help like she says i can't explain it to emil it's emotional for me emil this is this is emotional it goes so deep in me i can't i can't give you a good reason and she kind of tries to she pulls cable thinking you know cable too is struggling with you know, having fallen in love with a Polynesian girl, knowing that there's no way Liad is going to be accepted by his, I think he's from New York or something like that. He understands what I'm trying to say. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. That's right. Philadelphia, PA. He's from, yeah, like we think like mainline, you know, I imagine he's got some fabulous mansion in in Philadelphia where his family comes from. Knows, right? There's no way. Probably went to West Point or whatever. He's not going to be able to bring Liat back and say, and she's not going to be accepted as his wife. He knows that. And Nellie knows that. And so she tries to get Cable to explain to Emil, right? Help him understand why this is impossible and why. And certainly she's, her plea is like, this isn't my fault, right? Like, it's just born in me. It's emotional. And Cable turns and then she runs away. And, and Emil turns to Cable and says, what is she, what are you all talking about? You crazy Americans. Like, this is, you can't help this. Like, you have no power over this thing. And Cable turns angrily and says, no, right? Bullshit. Uh, it's not born in you. You have to learn this. And so you've got to be carefully taught is an angry screed, right? It's a guy who's waking up to and is angry about what his culture has done to him. 
and it has, I don't know, it, it's an interesting, so, so Rogers later, I mean, so the song became kind of incendiary a little bit, right? The Georgia state legislature tried to ban South Pacific when it went down to open up in Atlanta because it was, that, that had to do with communism. It was seen as prom- promulgating communism. <laughs> I don't really know where they got that from, but, but I think it was, you know, basically this is New York values, quote unquote, right? These two New York Jews, Heimerstein wasn't really Jewish in every, but that's a conversation for another time, coming down to bring their enlightenment values to this, you know, to the great state of Georgia. And Rogers later on said, you know, that the song has certainly taken off. A lot of sermons have been preached on you've got to be carefully taught. He said, uh, we actually didn't intend it as a sermon. It came out of character. We wanted a, we wanted a song to illustrate what Joe Cable was going through in this moment. Uh, and only later on did it become the kind of the anthem of, you know, the kind of the civil rights movement or whatever it became. I think Hammerstein's sense of it was very different. I think he wrote the song in some ways kind of hoping. In some ways, you've got to be carefully taught is Oscar Hammerstein. That's him talking, right? Yes. That is his, his experience as somebody who has been a kind of surrogate father to two mixed-race kids who has seen what his country did to Japanese Americans and was horrified by it understands how deep that racism goes in people around him, in himself, I assume, and is working through it and is angry. The song is an angry song. It's a screed. Yeah. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught you've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be taught before it's too late before you was six or seven or eight to hate all the people your relatives hate you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be carefully taught this is just a kind of ugliness i was running away from it has followed me all this way all these years and when we have talked about this before, you did some research. One of the tropes that Nathan and I had quite often talked about was a lot of the musical theater composers and lyricists uh, are, are are Jewish men of a particular generation playing largely to uh, non-Jewish audiences. And we got interested in that because of its connection with uh, with gospel and with Christianity. And then I think it was a doctoral thesis or something like that, where somebody traced Oscar Hammerstein's connection with the Universalist, Mm -hmm. uh, Unitarian. And was he baptized in an Episcopal church? He was baptized Episcopal. Yeah, his family his family is Jewish by extraction. His uh, his grandfather, I think, was the one who emigrated from Germany. I want to say in the 1840s or something like that. Became you know basically kind of founded Times Square. Uh, Long Acre Square, the kind of so in some ways the whole Broadway industry can be traced back to Oxford Hammerstein the first, who was an impresario and a producer who kind of created <laughs> middle nineteenth century American popular entertainment in New York and opened a bunch of signature theaters. So Oscar Hammerstein the second comes from a theatrical family, uh, a family with Jewish roots, although not practicing, I don't think. And uh, and Hammerstein himself later said, I I don't really identify as a religious person. 
Uh, in fact, he, he tells a really interesting story about uh, a stranger stopping him on the on the street and saying, hey, you know, what religion are you? And Hammerstein, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not religious. So the stranger says, well, I've heard your music. I mean, you know, like if 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 that's not religious music, I don't know what is. And and Hammerstein says something. I'm trying to pull up the quote here. He went on, I went on feeling as if I've been caught feeling Hammerstein said feeling that I was religious. My my thought partner was was discovered from the words of my song that I had faith, faith in mankind, faith that there was something more powerful than mankind behind it all, and faith that in the long run, good triumphs over evil. Hammerstein says, if that's religion, I'm religious. That's my definition of religion. Which I want to argue, he actually did learn. He, as a, in Sunday, as a child, he was raised by Unitarian Universalists uh, in New York City. Uh, and that idea, that kind of the, the universal faith of mankind, right? He wrote to his son, our faith is the fatherhood of God. This is very masculine, patriarchal, mid-century language, right? The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, the leadership of Jesus, salvation by character, the progress of mankind, onward and upward forever. That's Hammerstein's articulation of the moral code, the religious code he got growing up. And I think that kind of social gospel-oriented approach to religion and to human betterment, I think that's where he's writing from. I think that shapes his sensibilities as an artist. This is a guy with a social agenda. He's not interested in salvation in the next life. He's not interested in what happens when you die. He's interested in salvation in this life, the salvation kind of through redeemed society. And he thinks that starts at kind of at the individual level, men and women who are transformed by the power of love and are able to transcend the deeply baked fear and racism and misogyny that uh, that they learned as children. And that's what he's was kind of it, trying to do. Yeah. Neat. Was was the quote uh, salvation by character? Salvation by character. Yeah, that's how he salvation that's how he articulated character. it to his son later on. This is what I learned in Sunday yeah. school, right? This was the kind of the universalist uh, tenets, if you like. Fatherhood of yeah. God, brotherhood of man, salvation by character, progress. Salvation by character. Very much yeah. progress and oriented. I th- and I think you begin to see that I'm not sure how prevalent that is in Carousel in Oklahoma, but it sure is in South Pacific yeah. and in King and I and, and in the sound, in of, sound music. of music. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a kind of growing uh, awareness of, of that particular tenant of his kind of universalist social gospel uh, view that comes more and more to the fore. Another thing that interests me about South Pacific is I think it's the first big musical, I could be wrong, I might not be aware of others, that turns the eyes of America not back to Europe and Britain, but to Asia, to Polynesia. Um, Already, I guess, Puccini had done that to some extent with Madame Butterfly, Gilbert and Sullivan had done that to some extent with the Mikado, both of them setting up, uh, and I guess uh, Puccini as well with Turandot, but they kind of set up uh, kind of uh, Asian exoticism. Asian fantasies, Um, yeah. Yeah, whereas I think South Pacific seeks to show Asia, uh, number one, as a very beautiful place with real human beings um, and where love is possible and where a new way to form family and be in relationship is emerging away from the old world 
toward a toward a new horizon in some way. Yeah, that's I think that's what they're that's what they're making a, a play for, making a bid for. I mean, we we can with our twenty first century eyes kind of look, especially I think about the film of South Pacific and the weird colored filters that go along, and then the the weird kind of tribal dance numbers where you think, oh, okay, this isn't really that too far removed from the Mikado or from Madame Butterfly. But I see you know I see what you're trying to do, and that's interesting. So yeah, they had their blind spots. They were they were white men of a particular generation. Um, but yeah, as you say, are trying to uh, trying to tell a very different story and are telling a very American oriented story, right? This is this is not uh, which I suppose I mean that's very much true for Oklahoma and for Carousel True, less less for uh, The Sound of Music. But this is this is a story about America and it's a contemporary story, right? This is you know this is this is what we have just lived through, right? This is 1949. So this is fresh memory. Um, this is you know if if we were going to do a, a musical today about you know the, the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? It's it's lived history. The people on stage lived through the experiences their characters are experiencing on stage, uh, and the and more importantly, the audience sitting there has just lived through these stories and is living right. through them. The audience probably includes returned GIs, people who were in the the theater, the Asian theater uh, in the Second World War. These are, as you say, living memories. It, it's kind of like, uh, it'd be like doing a musical in 2020 about George Floyd's murder. It would be that fresh and and seeing seeing the relationship between Nettie, uh, Nellie Forbush and, and Emil DeBeck is really uh, pushing buttons. Uh, his children, especially, as you say, this new household, probably more buttons pressed with Cable and Liat. Yeah, um, it's interesting yeah. because, I mean, they're presented, I, I almost want to say, unproblematically as a pure love story. I mean, you think about Younger Than Springtime, right? I mean, like, what what is more pure an expression of youthful lust and crush and, like, just, I mean, the, the in a certain way, the purity of their love. And, I, I mean, you know, I watched it as a kid, you know, in, what, 1980 something 87 88 uh didn't really think about right like what the stakes that 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 scene would have had in 1949 i mean in some ways the the kind of the audacity to present this interracial coupling as as something that was pure and beautiful right that's that's political in 1949 in a way that you know in 1989 i was oh yeah so there's some you know there's there's a hot guy with a shirt off and that that lady has nice long, nice long brown hair um it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty it, it, so you think about kind of you know th- there's not a story yet around what the second world war means for americans right they're they are actively crafting what will become the mythology of who america was what this moment meant and for hammerstein it was almost like let's seize that moment let's use it let's say something about the society that we are now building having come out of this uh global experience of encountering people whose eyes are differently made all over the world having our norms our assumptions our fears challenged in you know you and you think about all the things that i mean you you can you know mixed uh mixed companies of men african-american soldiers white soldiers all being part of the same company i mean the kinds of social revolutions that are implicit in the Second World War, Hammerstein's like that's the story he wants to tell. Not so much yes. about like this is what this meant for us, but this is what this is what this story will mean for us now as a post-war culture. Here's what we can learn from this experience. And Hammerstein really wants to make sure we don't forget the lessons of what it was like to engage with people who were different from us. Yeah, and and bring that into consciousness about our lives back in in North America, Canadians, Americans, looking again at their neighbors, uh, 
I remember vividly, and it was around the same time as I saw the first release of the movie South Pacific, 1962-63, our next door neighbors uh, had two daughters and the eldest daughter fell in love with and uh, married a Japanese Canadian guy. And on the day of their wedding, and I remember this vividly, mom and dad, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Town, lovely people, sat in the backyard and their daughter left the house and got into the car to go to the church to get married. And they refused to go because they didn't believe that it was right that their red-haired, white-skinned daughter would marry a Japanese guy. And I remember seeing them in the afternoon. They were sort of sitting out and you could see the pain. I was playing in the backyard. I was seven or eight, whatever, six or seven or eight. (laughs) You were being carefully taught. (laughs) I was being carefully taught. And the reason I mentioned that experience isn't that it was unique. I mean, it was unique. It it was was mine, but it, it was replicated over and over again across North America as as couples. And again, it's the power of love, romantic love, but love all the same. Even C.S. Lewis said that, you know, uh, erotic love is part of the great love sure. of God. Maybe it's not as pure as agape <laughs> or philia, right. but it's still love. And it's love that brings these uh, these people together. Um, yeah, erotic for sure, but erotic love is that can is grow into something. Yeah, I mean, certainly with with Cable yeah. and Leah, you do have a, and I, I mean, I love the full throated embrace of eroticism that they, you know, it's like it is, it's two young people. They don't share a single word in common, but their bodies know what to do. I mean, there is something, you know, there is something quite beautiful about that. But with Nellie and Emil, you get a, a more complicated sketching out of what an intimate partnership can look like that includes the erotic element for sure. Um, but there's, you know, there's an age difference. There's all kinds of differences at, at play for Nellie and Emil that they, you know, get to kind of learn what it means to love through that, which is, I mean, does kind of put them into that kind of place of agape love, right? What it means to uh, to build community with. I mean, so many of their scenes are about sharing a, a meal, right? I mean, you think about like when they're all kind of, you know, with that, that, that last scene where she's, you know, I, isn't she like serving tea with the kids or something like that? I and, think so. And Emil walks so, in. Yeah. I mean, like, it's almost a Eucharistic moment. That, that, yeah. that, that table that you see at the beginning of South Pacific, it's the altar, and it's about it's about sharing food. It's about multi generational kinds. You know, she she creates room in her in her heart not just to love a meal, but to love his kids, to love his past, to love his Polynesian wife who's no longer there. That's a pretty expansive kind of love that Nelly begins to learn how to practice. And yeah, just thinking about yes, absolutely, and also thinking about uh, the celebration of eroticism which really is what some enchanted evening is about yeah. it is it is the love it's the anthem it's the anthem for love at first sight yep. you you may see a stranger across a crowded room and somehow you know you you know even then that somehow you'll see them again and again mm-hmm. this I, I mean, the saccharin is just dripping down here with the kind of love at first sight. But uh, it's an experience, I think, that any fortunate human being has had to see someone to make eye contact or not, and then to have the opportunity to actually encounter them and, and meet them yeah. and and fall in love. Uh-huh. You know, it's... Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, Roger. Maybe I'm. No, I think that I think you're onto something. I mean, Hammerstein was not only was he not afraid to be saccharine, to be sentimental. I think he saw a kind of, you know, that's his that's his universalist tendencies coming out again, right? That like, yeah. I mean, a a an ideological commitment to the goodness of human beings, right? That like we, and, and you know, I have, I have my own thoughts about this. I you know I'm a, I grew up an evangelical Protestant. So, you know, the, my, my Calvinist roots kind of start to come out when we talk about like the good, the innate, the innate goodness of humankind. I don't, know, I, don't I don't know that I see a lot of <laughs> <laughs> total depravity makes sense to me on a lot of my days, but not for Hammerstein, right? Total depravity of the yeah. human being was not in his lexicon. He believed that people were fundamentally capable of salvation through their through the perfection of their own character um so there is this kind of full full-throated embrace of sentimentality he saw god in nature he saw god in love he wasn't afraid to cry he wanted you to cry in the theater not just because you were sad but because you were moved by the profundity of human emotionality and human connection i mean he is he is working every trick in the book he can to get you in touch with the better angels of your nature because he thinks that's how society is redeemed so it's more than yeah. just like a cheap schlocky romance ballad. Like he thinks by if he does his job right on some enchanted evening, he puts you in an emotional place where then you can hear you've got to be carefully taught and you can leave the theater a slightly different person. That's what he's interested in. Some enchanted evening. You may see a stranger. You may see a stranger. Across a crowded room, and somehow you know, you know even then that somewhere you see her again and again. Some enchanted Someone may be laughing, you may hear her laughing, across a crowded room, and night after night, as strange as it seems, the sound of her laughter explain it who can tell you why fools give you reasons wise men never try some enchanted evening who could explain it who can tell you why fools give you reason wise men never try you know wise men never try because wisdom and love are deeply interconnected here. And uh, the love that uh, uh, Nellie and uh, uh, Emil de Beck find with each other ultimately transcends all sorts of things. And of course, is her love for him, I think, is deepened because of almost losing him, kind of like Julie almost, uh, Julie loses Billy Bigelow. Uh, and then it, it's profound and it's deep. Whereas... Poor old Joe Cable, whose plane goes down, is never seen again, at least has had 
that moment uh, with Liat, uh, the younger than springtime moment where he experienced uh, experienced the fullness of embodied love for for a moment. Yeah. I mean, there um, you you do you know like I suppose with our twenty first century mindset, I mean, there's a piece of me that thinks, okay, we're centering the white experience. You know, like we never we never hear Liot's side of this. We get a little bit of Emile's, but even Emile is French. I mean, he's you know he's we don't we don't really hear <laughs> the Polynesian. We get Bloody Mary, who's at best a uncomfortable stereotype and at worst a really problematic stereotype. So you know, it, it is a. It is a story by white people for white people in a way that Absolutely. centers our experience dealing with racism and doesn't really ask us to do a lot of work in terms of understanding the the fallout for people who are not white of our own wrestling with privilege and power. Um, so, you know, it's not a it's not a perfect show in that way. Not a perfect show, but it's a springboard. Yeah. I think uh, uh, the show itself, the any experience of it, gives the opportunity for a thinking audience to ask some deep questions about their own racism, uh, about how what the power of love has meant in our lives, and about uh, whether ab- about the whole, as you say, uh, social construction of racism. Just with that one song, you've got to be carefully taught an angry screech, as you say, against a world where uh, people are judged and dismissed because of their race and holding up another possibility. Yeah. And it's a great show. And it's a great show. It's hard it's not to hard show. not to have fun at South Pacific for all of the <laughs> for all of the casual misogyny and un, un, unexamined racial stereotypes that are still in the show. It's a fun night out. I mean, you've got dancing sailors, I mean, you've got nurses washing oh their boy. hair. Yeah. If the nurses in bikinis don't do it for you, just wait till the wait till nothing like a dame, and you get the gayest company of Broadway actors ever singing about how bad they want a woman and what they might do in the meantime while one is not available. And you tell me that's not a um, exciting experience to take your and you get uh, the uh, colonel or whatever up on stage doing really bad drag really bad drag. Yeah, I forgot about that with a brazier made of coconut yeah, shells. That's a, so that's a slightly uh, there are some embarrassing moments. There are. However, there are. However, uh, great to talk about South Pacific again. I think next time we're on. Yeah, speaking of the white savior complex, we get to we get to deal with another white woman dealing with her her prejudices in a in a different context and think about an, another show that takes us to another part of the world in some uh, problematic ways and tells a story <laughs> ostensibly about uh, you know about Siam and Annalia Owens and her experience there. So it's The King and I next time. In the meantime, uh, keep listening to musicals. Great to chat again, Nathan. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.